following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you here this morning and to know that we've got a bunch of you that have joined us online. If you're new around here, my name's Barry. I get the great joy and privilege to be the senior pastor here at IBC, and we are thrilled that you are here. I'm also thrilled to be here with all of you, to be back with you this week. I spent the better part of this past week in Montana with a bunch of pastors, and it was incredible. We, it was a group of us that just sat around a big table, and, and we talked about the health of our souls, the health of our families, and the health of our churches. We, we got to do a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of fly fishing along with that. So it was an incredible time. But I'm so glad to be back with you this morning and I'm ready to go. So grab your Bible and let's go to Luke chapter 10. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Sociologists have a fancy term that describes, at least in part, what perpetuates some of the divisions that we experience in our society. And that fancy term is outgroup homogeneity effect. The, the, the outgroup homogeneity effect. Now, here's what that is. It is, first begins with this, just this recognition of the human tendency to create groups, to, to categorize one another into groups. The in-group and the out-group, right? The, the us and the them, Anybody remember middle school, <laughs> right? I'll never forget. I'm, I'm nearly 50 years old, and I'll never forget the first day of sixth grade. I went at lunchtime to sit next to my buddy from fifth grade, Kevin, and I went to sit down next to Kevin and this kid named Anthony. He looked me right in the face, and he said, who told you you could sit here? And it became immediately apparent who was in and who was out. Right? This perpetual human tendency to divide ourselves between us and them, between who's in and who's out. And, and on this understanding, in-group isn't just the cool kids. Right? It is any group that you are a part of. You are a part of the in-group. And any group then that you're not a part of is the out-group. But the out-group homogeneity effect is this tendency that we all have when dividing ourselves into group, to think that those are who are in the out group are all the same. That, that we who are in the in group, we're all unique, but they are all the same. They are different from us, but they're different from us in all the same way. We're unique, they're the same. So it leads to thinking like, um, like all Democrats, are, fill in the blank. All Republicans are, fill in the blank. Right? All, all black people are, all, all white people are, all Hispanic people are all, are, all LGBTQ people are, all immigrants are, all millennials are. Now, what they say about millennials is true, but uh, no. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Don't email me, right? And don't give me the okay boomer. I'm Gen X. Thank you very much. Right? But, but you see the, the tendency to think we're all unique, but they, they're all the same. And it perpetuates the divisions that exist between us and them. Now, the, the, um, 
outgroup homogeneity effect may have only received that label by sociologists in recent years, and yet it has been around for a long, long time. And the Jesus movement was born into a world that divided up everybody into us and them, into the in-group and the out-groups. The Jesus movement is born into this this world, but the Jesus movement in this world is incredibly unique both then and now because to be a part of this in-group requires you to love every other out-group. We are in the third week of a series called For the Sake of the World. This, this little phrase comes from the very end of our church vision statement that, that we believe that God is calling us, the people of Irving Bible Church, to become a multi-ethnic movement of missionary disciples formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. And this year at IBC, we, we talked about the idea that we're going deeper into our discipleship to Jesus by going deeper into the story of the Bible. And this grand biblical story has given shape to our sermon series throughout the year. We began talking about the reality that that the story begins with the the setting and the characters. And that like every great story, there's a conflict that enters the story. The conflict in the biblical story is sin, is human rebellion against God that, that causes a break, a rupture between us and God, between us and each other. And then following that uh, sort of typical plot line, you have what's called the rising action. That is the unfolding of the consequences of the conflict. Things just get worse and worse. And we see that in the Old Testament, in the story of Israel that we talked about really is the story of us. But that grand biblical story reaches its climax in the person and work of Jesus. And now we find ourselves in our story and and in our lives, living in what's called now the falling action, the descending action, that is the unfolding of the consequences of the climax. And that is the mission of the church. And over the course of these weeks, we've been talking about the mission of the church using Jesus' final words to his disciples in Acts chapter one, verse eight. In those final words recorded in Acts, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in week one, we talked about the idea of living on mission in our Jerusalem, in the places that we inhabit in our everyday lives to begin where we are closest to us in our homes, in our workplaces. And then last week, Sissy talked about our Judea, the, the, the need for us to move toward the needs, the broken places in our city, recognizing that the DFW Metroplex is actually considerably larger than the whole region of Judea in Jesus' day. And that we're called to move towards the needs, the broken places in the city around us. But, but Jesus goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And you need to know that this isn't just geographical expansion. It it is that, right? It is moving out from the place that they are to where Jesus wants them to go. But when Jesus gets to Samaria, there's something more than just geographic expansion happening. He's now telling them to go to the other, to the outsiders 
Now, I think those first disciples are, they're hearing the words of Jesus and they're going, okay, Jerusalem, got it. Judea, check. Samaria, wait, hold on, time out, right? Record scratch moment. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Samaria? You want us to go to them? You want us to bear witness to them? You want us to spend time with them, to get close to them? You want us to serve them, to help them? You want us to take the gospel to them? And Jesus says, that's exactly what I want you to do. Because loving them constitutes the very essence of being us. Loving them constitutes the very essence of being us. Because Jesus came to show a costly, sacrificial, boundary-breaking love to all of us who were outsiders, bringing us in and now sending us out. Loving those who are outside constitutes the very essence of what it means to be followers of Jesus. So this morning, what I wanna do with you is I wanna take you to a story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus makes the despised outsider the hero of the story. And I think in this story, we find something really powerful, really important for us today. This story is one of the most beloved, most well-known stories of Jesus, but I think sometimes we actually miss part of what's going on here. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, But what you need to know right up front before we get into this story is that for those in the first century world, outside of Samaria, for those of Jesus' first hearers, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. They all had their version of all Samaritans are fill in the blank. And yet Jesus takes this one who is considered in that day the despised outsider and makes him the hero of the story and thereby communicates something very powerful to us today. Look with me, if you will, at uh, Luke chapter 10. We're gonna pick up the story in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Now we're introduced to this little story by by getting the the characters involved. Certainly it's Jesus, but it's also this um, expert in the law, this Bible scholar, this seminary professor, we would say in our day, who comes to Jesus with a question. He comes to Jesus and we're told he comes to Jesus to test him. Good luck with that, right? He, He comes trying to test him. And he says to them, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, I want you to notice with me, there's some tension even in the way the question is framed, right? What must I do in order to inherit eternal life? Well, inheritance isn't typically something that you have to do anything. 
uh, you can think about it this way. Some of you are aware that my mother, uh, who's a part of our church, my mother lives with us. And um, while that's certainly true, it's probably more true to say that we live with her, right? That uh, when we moved into the home that we live in now, we, well, I was a struggling seminary professor. And so it's technically her home and we pay rent every month, but we live with her. Funny, when she first started um, here at IBC, that there were some folks who heard that she lived with us. And she said, oh, how good of them to bring you in. In reality, it's really the reverse. How good of her that she brought us in, right? And so, so we live in this beautiful home and it's my mother's home, but in theory at least, one day I will inherit it. But could you imagine how it might uh, strike my mother if I was to go to her and say, mother, what must I do to inherit this beautiful home? She might get a little nervous about what I might do so as to inherit the home a little bit early, right? Because typically to inherit something isn't because you've done anything, it's because somebody else has died. And in fact, interestingly enough, those of us who inherit eternal life inherited because of the death of Jesus on our behalf. But this guy comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus does what Jesus is often want to do, which is to sort of turn it back on him, right? To answer the question with a question. What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it, right? What's, what's there in the Bible, Mr. Bible scholar? What do, you, what do you think it says? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What he does here is he quotes Deuteronomy chapter six. Love God with all you are and all you have. Deuteronomy 6, 5. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, 18. And love your neighbor as yourself. There's a good chance that this guy already knows that this is the way that Jesus is going around summing up the law. These two commands that go together. Love God with all you are and all you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's, it's as though he puts this out there and Jesus replies to him and says, well, do this and live. It's as though Jesus says, you wanna earn the right to inherit eternal life? All you gotta do is love God completely and consistently with your whole being, with all you are and all you have, and then to love your neighbor with the same urgency and effort that you exert caring for yourself. Jesus sets the bar pretty high. A bar, in fact, that no one can fully and finally reach on their own. And so though Jesus says, you think you can reach that bar? Go for it, pal. <laughs> and the guy, we're, we read in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? This, this Bible scholar hears Jesus' affirmation of what it takes, and he thinks, I think I can handle that. Right? I think I can reach that bar. I know what it means to love God. It means to obey his law, and I think I've got that one down. So the only question is this neighbor question. Who exactly is my neighbor? Who am I obligated to love? And perhaps more importantly, who am I not obligated to love? Right? Because in that day, there was this sense of obligation and the Bible scholar asked Jesus this question because he wants carefully defined boundaries of obligation. 
It would have been commonly understood by first century Jews that they were to love, they were obligated to love each other. There was a little bit of an open question about what was obligated to those who converted to Judaism that were not ethnically Jewish, but it was routinely assumed that for those who were not part of us, right, those who were ethnically other, that there was no actual obligation to love them. That, for example, we have one ancient text that talks about the idea that you shouldn't take the life of a Gentile, but you're under no obligation to save them. If they're drowning, let them drown. If they're dying, let them die. This man wants to know if Jesus signs off on his way of dividing up the world between us and them, between in and out. And once again, Jesus does what Jesus is often want to do. He tells him a story. It's one of Jesus' most well-known, most beloved stories. Pick up with me in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So here we have a man who's traveling down this ancient path from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem sits at about 2,600 feet above sea level. Jericho sits about 800 feet below sea level. And it's a 17-mile journey that that involves this descending about 3,500 feet of elevation. And he's going along this path. And and I've I've been there. I've seen it. It's this, this desert winding road through rocky crags and hills, down through narrow canyons to get from Jerusalem to Jericho. This road, this ancient path was actually called the way of blood, precisely because people could easily hide out in the caves or the crags and then pounce upon people and and rob them. And that's what happens to this man. The the hearers of Jesus' story, they know this road and they're thinking, oh gosh, I hope this guy's not by himself. I, I hope he's got some kind of protection. But sure enough, he gets jumped He gets robbed. And we're told that they stripped him and they left him half dead. That is, they left him unconscious. Now, these little details are actually very important to sort of get the force of the story. They stripped him and they left him half dead. They left him unconscious. You see, in the ancient world, there were kind of two main ways that you could tell who was who, right? Two ways that you could tell who was in and who was out, who was us and who was them by what people wore and by the way they talked, right? You could tell who this person was, what kind of person is this, by the clothes that he wore or by his language and his accent. And here we have this guy who's been stripped naked and left lying unconscious. Those who pass by have no way of knowing what what kind of person is this. And so we're told that a, a priest comes along 
A priest made his way down this road and and a priest, presumably, he's been serving his two-week stint at the temple in Jerusalem and now he's heading home to be with his family in Jericho. Oftentimes that was the case. They would live in Jericho and they would travel up for their two-week responsibility in the temple. So he's headed back home. And through the centuries, there's been all kind of ink that's been spilled as to why the priest didn't stop. Um, It may be that, that as he's passing along, he sees this man laying there and he thinks... If I stop, that could happen to me, right? If I stop, those guys may still be around here. They, they might jump me and, and I'd be left right here with this guy. It, it may also be that because I can't tell if he's half dead or all dead, that there's a fear that if I touch him, if I come in contact with him and he is in fact dead, that now I, the priest, I am ceremonially unclean. I can't come near, I can't come in contact with my family. I can't um, fulfill my religious obligation. I am ceremonially unclean by coming in contact with a dead person. It may also be that he can't tell what kind of person this is. This just might be a Gentile. And if I come in contact with a Gentile, once again, ceremonially considered unclean. We don't know precisely why the priest doesn't stop. All we know is, He could have stopped, but he didn't. The German theologian and pastor Helmut Dielicke, commenting on this passage, puts it this way. He says, none of us really wants to see. For to look at our neighbor's misery is the first step toward brotherly love. Love always seizes the eyes first and then the hand. If I close my eyes, my hand remains unemployed. And finally... My conscience too falls asleep. For this disquieting neighbor has disappeared from my sight. He, that is the priest, did not fail to see the wounded man because the path led him too far away from him, but because he saw him and didn't want to see him and therefore made the wide detour. We don't know exactly why the priest didn't stop. All we know is he could have stopped but he didn't. And so then along comes a Levite. The the priests are the ones who serve in the temple and the Levites are really the ones who kind of come alongside, support the work of the priest. And so you can think about it like it's a pastor and a deacon. That uh, that first the pastor comes along and so now the deacon is coming along behind him and and you sort of expect, okay, the the deacon's gonna handle this. But but if you know the story, you know what happens, right? The, The Levite does the exact same thing. He, he passes the man by. And what's happening in the mind of Jesus' hearers is that they're recognizing a conventional story form. They have this expectation. They know what happens next because the conventional story form in the first century world is you start with a Jewish priest, then you go to a Jewish Levite, and then finally you end up with a Jewish layperson. Right? And so they're expecting that's what's going to come along. It's like you start with the pastor, then you get the deacon, and then you just get the congregation member, the, 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 lay, the lay person. And that's going to be the person who steps up and is the hero of the story. That's what they're expecting. But Jesus completely defies their expectation. Jesus completely blows their mind because the next thing he says, but then a Samaritan. Jesus makes the despised outsider the hero of the story. In the first century world, there there, there was no one who was considered more despised among Jesus' contemporaries than the Samaritans. 
that there's a long history of animosity between the Jews and Samaritans going all the way back to when the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians took the rich, the affluent, off into exile. They left the poor in the land, but then they imported people into the land to intermix and intermarry with the Jewish people who were left there. And so the, the good Jewish people of the south of, of Judah considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds. They had a different ethnic background. They had different theology. They had a different way of life and they were despised. And that, that despising one another was mutual. There's years of hostility between these two groups that often broke out into violence, each toward the other. And so there is this deep-seated prejudice against the Samaritans. You actually see this on display just the page before. If you were to flip back and look at Luke chapter nine, Jesus and his buddies, the disciples, are headed to Jerusalem and they have to make their way through Samaria. They enter into a Samaritan village and they find that the people there are not welcoming. They're not hospitable. And the disciples kind of start to pout a little bit because of the treatment that they received by this Samaritan village. And James and John, so here are two of the three like inner circle of Jesus, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, are pouting about the lack of hospitality from this Samaritan village. And they say in Luke 9.54, let's see, where'd it go? Luke 9.54, they say, do you want us to call down fire upon them? Right? They're saying, they were not very welcoming to us. Do you want us to just call down fire and wipe them out? Right? Just obliterate all of them. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I want. Right? Now, this, I think, rather humorous story actually illustrates a really tragic point. And that is that proximity to Jesus doesn't automatically eliminate prejudice from our hearts. Right? That we've got to do the work of uprooting stuff that sometimes has taken deep root in our hearts. The Samaritans were the hated outsider and Jesus makes this Samaritan the hero of the story. And notice what he does, right? He, you can summarize his response. He saw him, he felt for him, and he moved towards him, right? He took notice, he took pity, and he took action. He responded first with his eyes, then with his heart, and then with his hands. And that's what Jesus wants from us, to see, to feel, and to move, to respond to hurting broken people around us with our eyes, with our hearts, with our hands. The Samaritan shows costly, risky, sacrificial love. He gave of his oil, he gave of his wine, he gave of part of his clothing, he gave of his donkey, he gave of his money, and he did all this at the risk of his own life. And he promises to cover whatever debt this man incurs. Now, look at the conclusion of the story. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Right? This guy, remember, he came to Jesus to test him. And we kind of alluded, this is not a really great idea on his part, right? Because now Jesus is putting him to the test. 
Who do you think? Which one of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Right? I'll, I'll, I'll give it m- multiple choice. A, B, or C, circle one. And the guy says, the one who showed mercy. Notice this expert in the Bible can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, with what little time we have left, I wanna make three quick observations about this story with you. Three quick observations. First, we will not get the force of this story unless we first identify with the man in the road before we identify with the Samaritan. Right, the way this, this story is often told is here's the good Samaritan, does good for somebody around him in need, go be like that. And Jesus does say, go and do likewise. So there is a kind of ethical imperative to this story. But I think it's important that we first recognize and identify with the man lying in the ditch because notice how Jesus doesn't tell the story. He doesn't say there was a man just like, or there was a Samaritan lying in the ditch and a man just like you came along and helped him. He said, there was a man just like you who was lying in the ditch and along came a Samaritan who showed him risky, costly, boundary-breaking love. And we need to, to identify first with the man in the ditch, recognizing ourselves to have been those who are on the outside, but because of Jesus' great love for us, because he is our great good Samaritan, who has loved us with a risky, costly, sacrificial, self-giving love. That we have now been the recipients of a radical grace, a radical love, a radical hospitality, a radical generosity. And because we have received that from him, therefore we are compelled to express that to the world. We have to first identify with the man in the ditch before we ever identify with the Samaritan. Second, We will not get the force of the story unless we identify first with the priest and the Levite before we identify with the Samaritan. Before we first recognize in this story our temptation, our tendency to turn our eyes away, to shield our hearts from, and to move away from people in need. Martin Luther King Jr. in his beautiful sermon on this passage talks about the distinction between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. The fundamental question that the priest and the Levite asked was, what will happen to me if I stop? The fundamental question that the Samaritan asked was, what will happen to this man if I don't? We have to first identify with the man in the ditch before we ever identify with the Samaritan. Second, we have to first identify with the priest and the Levite before we ever identify with the Samaritan. But then third, we need to identify with the Samaritan to get to the force of this story. Jesus makes the hero of the story, the despised outsider who expresses costly, risky, boundary-breaking love. Love of the outsider, love of the enemy. Amy Jill Levine is a Jewish scholar who writes about Jesus. Fascinating, Jewish scholar who writes about Jesus. And she says this, She says, in Jewish thought, one could not mistreat the enemy, but love was not mandated. Only Jesus insists on loving the enemy. 
Love your enemies and and pray for those who persecute you. She says, he may be the only person in antiquity to have given this instruction. Nobody, nobody, nobody in the ancient world was called to love the outsider until the Jesus movement came along. And the Jesus movement began with the mandate, you will be my witnesses to the outsider. And the first disciples heard this and they said, you want us to go to them, to to be around them, to spend time with them, to love them, to serve them, to help them, to share the gospel with them? And Jesus says, that's exactly what I want you to do. Because loving them constitutes the very essence of being us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love with which you have loved us. This radical love, this radical grace, this radical generosity, hospitality. That we who are outsiders, separated from you because of our sin, you have drawn us in. And now, Lord, because you have drawn us in, you send us out to express that kind of love to the world. And we pray that you would do a deep work in our hearts, uprooting any sense of superiority that still takes root there between us and the world around us. That you would help us to recognize that loving them constitutes the very essence of being us. And that's true because of the risky, the the costly, the boundary-breaking love of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.